This is Creator Culture by Hashtag Paid. Hey, I'm Danny Desatnik, and this is a podcast all about creators, but not just any creators. I'm talking about captivating storytellers and masterful videographers and generational writers. These are people I feel are underrated and people I want to theoretically invest in, no matter the size of their audience. Today's guest is Sarah Renee Clark. And unlike many creators, Sarah started off building products, caller an entrepreneur, and turned to video content to grow her art business later on. Today, she has over 175,000 subscribers on YouTube, and I promise you, she's just getting started. She continuously looks for new ways to get better as a creator, learning new editing skills, flying to creator events around the world to meet other creators, and building a strong team around her. This year, she created a new product called the Color Cube, which has already sold over 10,000 units. As a creator, that's insane in the best of ways. And this is just the beginning of a very successful creator career for Sarah. As always, before we get to the episode, here are three things about Sarah that you should know. Sarah started creating coloring books while on maternity leave as a way to keep herself and other mothers busy and happy. The second thing is that her husband is her operations, finance, and editing manager. And the last thing is that she's born, raised, and still lives in Melbourne, Australia. So it just shows being a creator really is a global business. And with that, let's get to the good stuff. Here's my conversation with Sarah Renee Clark. It's crazy how the creator space, people are looking to blow in two years, regardless of what the internet can do, versus more traditional careers where it takes five to at least 10 years, and then the 10 goes to 20 and 25, whatever it may be. It's weird how this is the norm in the creator space. Yes, very much so. It's a virality. It's this thing of success that it looks really appealing to just blow up and get big. And I mean, I look back at the amount of times that we wanted to go viral early on and we're like, oh, this is it. We're going to make it. And because we actually started our business back in 2015, technically, even though YouTube was later. The amount of times that I was like, I think this is it, this is our moment, and then it wasn't. And I look back and I go, if any one of those things was our big moment and it blew up then, we wouldn't be where we are now. And I'm so glad that none of those things actually went viral like we wanted to in the time because we actually have had a chance to learn so much more because we had to keep figuring it out because we never got lucky, so to speak. Okay, that's a very, very interesting comment and I like that a lot. So tell me this, how do you deal with virality when it comes now? when it's come in the past, how do you think about virality? I mean, I think for me personally, I don't feel like I've ever hit a point where I would describe something I've done as going viral. I've had a few moments that I would say I had pockets of virality. Like when I had 2,000 followers on TikTok, I had a video hit 2 million views. And I'll be honest, out of all the experiences I've had in my business, that was probably one of the worst experiences I had in the business, which is probably not what people expect. Because that experience for me created in myself a lot of anxiety, a lot of adrenaline and the audience that it exposed my stuff to in like a one day time frame was this mass audience of people who didn't know me. There's this, I guess, competitive bullying aspect that comes in the comments when you're exposed to a viral audience all of a sudden that I wasn't expecting. And this is after me having done content in some form or another for years, having dealt with people for years. And being a mature adult that can actually handle a bit of hate comments and yet to have it all just pile on like that in that one video caught me by surprise so much and threw me off that I couldn't sleep that night and it left me really anxious. So even though it was successful in the terms of, yay, I had a viral video and there was 
a positive flow and effect in some of my other stuff, I look back and that was not a positive experience when I look at my business as a whole. The growth from that was short-lived. The spike went down, whereas everything else I've done in my business, it's like a slow upward trend. And you can see the building and the audience that I build, as much as it's smaller, are a much more loyal audience. They're people that can really connect with me one-on-one. They're not just this hit and then go away. Even just the emotional thing for myself, like the anxiety in that moment and then the expectation to then have to recreate that moment was just really unhealthy. The few weeks following that, there was so much pressure to try and take advantage of that viral moment. And that was just an impossible thing. It's impossible to recreate virality. And so the expectation of myself was really unrealistic. And so in a way, I'm actually really thankful that I haven't had too many viral moments. I think I'd much rather smaller pockets. You know, it's nice to see things blow up in a small sense, like with our product launch that we're doing. It's nice to see that take off and it's nice to see those sales come in in bigger numbers than we expect. But when it gets too big, it gets very, very hard to kind of steer it and guide it and to know what to do with it. And it can be overwhelming, even if you would think it would be a good overwhelming. I think even good things can sometimes come in too hard and fast that you actually can't manage them and that can become a really negative thing for people. Yeah. You said so many things there that are so true. And how wild is it that we view TikTok and we say anyone can put something out in the world and find an audience and blow up. Yet here's the real human truth that with that, whole experience, it could actually be the experience if you're not ready, as you were talking about, could be the experience to just derail everything that gave you that enjoyment and that love before. So then everything from that experience, what did you learn so that whenever viral moments happen in the future, you can better deal with it? I think the biggest thing that taught me more than anything was when things like that do happen, not to give them too much weight especially the comments. In fact, I've even found myself warning friends of a similar thing of like, okay, if something goes viral, like don't put too much weight in that in both a positive and a negative sense. Don't put too much value in the virality. Don't think, yes, I've made it now because it's viral because it will go away. Use the opportunities, be very strategic about it. Look at, okay, if we think about in marketing terms, like a funnel, if you talk about the top of the funnel, bringing your audience in, and then you talk about how to convert them into customers or convert them to your longer videos if you have sort of other platforms or to a membership or something like that. Think about how you can be strategic in taking that virality and sort of converting those people. Maybe it's changing your bio for a week in order to try and capture that audience and say, hey, while you're here, come check out this other stuff or something like that. Try and be strategic about it. But at the same time, that might be the time not to read your comments for the week, not to look at the news about you for that week or something like that, because as much as you might get a huge positive uptake, you might also get a huge negative response because that's what happens with virality. It's never all love. It'll never be all positive. And the thing I've discovered is like, as they say, every one negative comment takes about 20 positive comments. You can say ignore the haters all you want, but if you're finding your value in the positive comments, it is very hard to ignore the negative comments. You can't kind of pick and choose. I've discovered as a creator, you either kind of have to ignore them all or accept them all. You can't really actually do a mental filter and take some in and block others if you're reading them all. It's kind of like all or nothing. Ideally, 
we would have a way for the platforms to filter that sentiment. I'd love that if they could create an AI that could filter the sentiment so people could only read the wonderful positive stuff. That would be great. But then I actually don't know that that's too healthy for people either because imagine the ego boost that we'd all get if we only read the good stuff. But I think definitely when the stuff hits that level of virality, the comments, they lose substance anyway. You've got comments from people that have watched your video for two seconds and have created an opinion about you. It's not worth reading those opinions. They're not the people that you actually want to listen to. So that's the time to just ignore all of it, I think. All right. Well, one thing that just popped into my mind, and I wonder if YouTube would ever do this. Imagine if in your comment section to you just as, let's say, like the publisher of the content, as the creator of the content, it showed how long that user was actually watching your content for. Like, oh, they've been a fan. They've been subscribed for two years. And you're like, oh, shit, this may be take this into account because they've been a fan versus they just found you a day ago from your viral video, let it go. I wonder if that might change it. But Yeah, I've been talking to a few people about I would love an AI tagging feature where when someone comments on your videos for the first time, it's like great and it filters them one way, but you would as a creator be able to filter and basically filter how active your audience is because I know for me, I love to be able to respond to my comments. I have about 170,000 subscribers right now and the comments are starting to pile up. And a lot of them are really people that are very, very loyal and watch a lot of my videos. And I want to be able to keep, like that's a big part of my business is engaging with my community, but it's starting to get unrealistic. And I look at channels that have 10 million followers and it's like, how could you possibly reply to comments? And I know most creators have the strategy of either ignoring all the comments altogether because it's just not possible anymore. Or they pick a certain day a week and they just look at the top comments, which unfortunately is just the comments that get the most upvotes or the verified channels. Or they look at the comments for half an hour after posting a video. I would love to see YouTube implement something where they take anyone who's commented, say, three or four times on past videos, or they look at the watch time and the people with the most watch time on your videos get tagged differently in the system and or get a star next to their name and that you could filter the comments by that so that when you have that half an hour a week or whatever it is you allocate to replying to comments, you could actually filter and reply to the people that are going to get the most value and the most appreciation so that creators can kind of choose how much time they can allocate, but that they could still actually have that really strong bond with their main community while also just ignoring all the sort of mass people that comment and fill up their comments that aren't actually that engaged audience. I think some version of that would be an amazing tool. Yeah, I think what you're getting at is intention, right? Like what's this audience's intention? It's so easy to walk down the street and see you wearing like a pink and green shirt and you're like, what a weird person because of that shirt and you walk away. But what if I walk by you and I'm like, that's a weird shirt. And you're like, oh, really? It's my favorite shirt. And I go, oh, favorite shirt why and you're like oh I'm a big fan of Starburst and like these are the colors and it resonates with me in this way and you're like oh that's actually kind of cool and then we start talking that interaction is so different than just the passerby and I think that's what you're getting at I was actually just watching your earlier comment about how it's either all or it's nothing and it reminds me of an interview with Hassan Minhaj the comedian and a basketball player JJ Redick and he was saying how we look at winning in such a singular one-dimensional way like these athletes can be the best in the world, but they might not have a relationship with their family. They might not have many good friends around them because they've had to sacrifice it all. Like we have to look at either everything or nothing. And it reminds me of what you're saying. How did you come to this perspective? I feel like it takes a while to be able to come to this awareness and this level-headedness that you're at. I mean, I actually stop and reflect on what we do a lot. 
And I've always in every part of our business, we stop and we stop and reflect, why are we doing this? You know, it's very easy when you create content and when you have an online business or any business, like I am a success driven person. I like achieving goals. I like aiming for more. So someone who is like me will always want to do bigger things. The thing with something like YouTube or an online business is there will always be another milestone. And so you have to stop and reach a certain point and go, well, okay, if I look at the channels that have 20 million followers and they're not happy and they want their 50 million followers, well, when do we stop hustling? When do we stop and go, okay, enough is enough. Now, if there is no point where it will ever be enough, then we have to figure out what it is now that will make that journey wonderful and that will make that journey special so that we enjoy that whole process because obviously there's no end game. And for me, that's always been people. Like everything that we do in our business, my entire platform, as much as what I do is art, and that seems like a really odd matchup, I guess. Everything I do is about people. The art I create and the things I do, the reason why I love doing this is because it's something that I've found that people have connected with and that when I share the stuff that I share, it has helped other people. Other products that when I've talked to my audience, I've worked out they wanted. And that's ironically the reason why my products have been so successful is because they've been exactly what people needed. But that's because I'm always looking at what do people want? What do people need? How can I help them? And so for me, I don't want to get to a certain point and just stop replying to comments. I talk to my team constantly about we need to put in place now whatever we can so that when my channel grows and when we reach a point where we sort of hit that, you know, mini celebrity status or whatever you want to call it, that I can still be accessible and approachable. Even we have to start putting up walls because we start to get people that we do have to keep a bit of distance from. But we still find a way that I can still connect with people because that is the whole reason why I'm doing this. And so for me, I am constantly rechecking myself and rechecking what we do to make sure we don't lose that focus. And I think every time we do that, you know, even with the way we handle our Facebook comments and our YouTube comments, but also our email list, and we try to make a point of every single email that comes into our inbox, which is a few hundred a day now, We answer every single one, as long as they're not spam. But it might not be me directly, but it is one of my team. But even then, it's like we still want to make sure that I see them because that's what we want people to know, that I see the emails. So she'll be replying, but she'll put them in a spreadsheet. So we're trying to find ways with whatever we do so that we are reducing the time for me because realistically we have to be able to scale it, but that even with reducing my time, we are still keeping that connection with me and my audience, because that is a really big priority for us. And if that means we reach a point where we actually just can't grow, we have to slow down our growth because we just can't grow anymore, then that will be where we stop because I don't want to ever grow to a point where I'm inaccessible to people. I think for me, that's the point for me where it's like, I won't enjoy this anymore. It's so sensible. The last thing you said is you obviously know what drives you. You obviously know what means the most to you that like continues to fulfill you. And so to say something like, if we're growing too fast to a point where I'm just not accessible and I can't continue to do what I want to do, I don't know if I want to keep growing. Like that's such a unique thing to say. And I think a positively unique thing to say. So what does going back to your community, what is that interaction? What does that system look like now? How do you interact with your community? I see you doing a bunch of lives, which is really cool. But what else does that encompass to foster that connection? Yeah. So at the moment, like I mentioned, we do have an email contact that we try to actually reply to everything. We also have a Facebook group. I mean, it's 
growing really quickly. So we're always trying to plan ahead. We're always trying to plan not just like for the next month, but like, okay, what is this going to look like in three years? Let's try and put in some systems now so that we get the system in place before the group outgrows the system. But the Facebook group is something that like I can't see every post, but I try to just go in once a day, pop in, like some stuff and be active so that I'm in that community in some form or another. And other than that, the group is amazing. And honestly, the people in the group look after each other so well that there's like such a little drama and it's just wonderful. And then other than that, like YouTube, it is just trying to reply to the comments. I'm at the point now where I can't reply to every comment, but I still try to at least read them. And I think that's probably my biggest thing at the moment that I need to find a better system is actually figuring out like I was saying, those suggestions before of how YouTube could improve their comment system. And that's why that's like fresh in my mind, because at the moment I'm seeing that's the one area that I don't have a system in place because I do that myself. I don't have my team do that because there's not really a login system or something that you can have a team member do that. And because I'm also very big on, and the same with Instagram and that, if I have a team member replying, I don't want my audience thinking it's me for that same sort of reason. I don't want someone thinking that I'm replying and it's not actually me. And then on Instagram, like we actually recently just closed our DMs to try and get people to funnel to these other things because we found just having too many different places. We looked at that one and it was like 50% of the DMs were actually just spam. And so we said, well, I want to be accessible, but by closing off this one channel and just encouraging people, and I think Facebook DMs is the same, using the autoresponder and pushing them to the email gives us actually better access because we have a system there rather than spreading ourselves thin in these other platforms, just encouraging people to use that one channel that we've got a really good system in place. So far, that seems to be working. So, yeah. So smart. Tell me this. I'm interested because what you're describing here, it almost reminds me of a producer in the music industry that I'm a really big fan of for both the art that he comes out with, the music that he comes out with, but also how he and his team build his business. His name's Kenny Beats. He has a Discord I think it's like 115,000 people. It's crazy. They've built it over two, three years. And what he's done, which I think is really cool, is he's seen the people that have intent all the time and are commenting and moderating naturally and just trying to uplift the group. And when they're looking to hire, they actually go into their community and try hire from their community. Have you ever done that? Or is that something that you would ever do? It's something I've definitely kept in mind We've had at different times people that have kind of taken on volunteer roles, like moderating in the Facebook group. Back when I first started, before I was even on YouTube, I actually created coloring pages before I even knew how to color. So I used to actually have a little team of colorists who were people that colored in the pages and then I used their pictures in my marketing. So some of my really old images on my website actually have like credits of who colored them because I had this little team. They would get free access to my products. And they would do the coloring for me and they were all from the group and things like that. The thing at the moment, for the same reasons that we've talked about, about really wanting to focus on people, some of the different VAs that I've had in the past and different team members I've had in the past, I mean, I make it sound like we've had this huge team. We've only really hired two or three people previously and a lot of them have worked remotely. And through those different experiences, we've really reached that point of saying, we really want people that we can hire that can work with us in person. So at the moment, we have one person who works here with us and one person who lives a few hours away that can come in once a month and meet with us. Because as much as remote workers can be great, having people here for us has just allowed us to really do just a whole nother level of team building. 
and allows us to really build, I guess, that real team spirit and to make sure that we all carry that same why, that we are all about the people, that we all get that same focus. And for that same reason, we probably won't ever have a team of 100 people like I assume some creators have because that reaches a level where I would find it really hard to have that kind of relationship with each of my team members. You know, I think going beyond 10 or 15 people, that starts to get really hard. And so I think for me, that ideal team will always stay fairly small so that, and maybe we would then outsource stuff and have people sort of liaise with other companies or however that works. But again, keeping that core quite small so that we can really just build a strong team with a really strong foundation so that we can just have that focus and really build a community that is strong within and therefore hopefully represents a really strong image as well. It's cool you bring this up. Just before this, I was rushing home. I'm in LA right now for the next week or so. And I went to go visit a friend who's also a creator. And his house is essentially his office as well for his fiance too. And he has three or four people on his team. And I went to go say what's up. It was the first time I was at his house and first time I really met his team. And yeah, it was such a nice feeling. You walk into the house, you go into the room where they're doing all their work, they're meeting, all of them are sitting around, we're having good discussion. They're saying, oh yeah, cool, make sure you write that down. Oh, go bring that thing. Let's show them what, what we're thinking about. But I can imagine that it's it probably fosters so much care and so much passion too in one room. And it comes back to what you were saying, like you care about people. But tell me more about that. What is it you say, like for you, it's just all about people. What does that mean? Where does that come from? I mean, I don't know how to explain that other than I think it's always been a part of who I am. And so that's really hard to put into words because it's just so much of me as a person, like my whole life, that it's hard to explain to someone who doesn't already naturally know what that means. (laughs) Um, I think for me, like it's always been this thing of if there's someone in need, I want to be the person that can help them. I've always just wanted to be able to help as many people as I can. I never expected coloring books to be the thing that would enable me to do that. And even having a public platform, I mean, that just allows me to actually help a mass amount of people as opposed to just helping individual people. I actually don't care about being famous or any of that kind of stuff. I like having the authority in my space and being a known face because that allows me more tools to be able to help more people. That excites me in that way. Even the money that we have, it's like, great, that means that if we want to do something generous for someone, we just don't even have to think about it. We can just do it, you know, rather than when I was a kid and feel like I'd want to do something for someone and I'd have to save up all my little dollars to be able to buy something nice for someone. So I don't know if that really helps to explain it, but yeah. No, I have the same feeling. There's people that you meet and you wish you could invest in them, but you don't have that money liquid. So what you do, you try connect them to the right people or you try put some of your time to help them. So I can imagine that not only are you becoming more successful, maybe there's more money, maybe there's more fame, maybe there's just more access that you get as you're slowly building your channel. But it sounds like you'll never really reach such depths of burnout because everything you're doing is redemptive. Everything you're doing actually comes back to what really means a lot to you. I feel like that's unique as a creator to get to that point. When it comes to, like you mentioned, burnout briefly, I actually have been through burnout in the past in a previous job. And so one of the big things that keeps us grounded now, both for me, but also for my team, is that I never want to see any of us go through what I went through when I did go through burnout. And so a lot of the times when we're doing stuff, it's again, I don't want to see us hustle forever. And I want to see us put in systems in place now, because I know that There was a time for a little while, and I guess a lot of people make this mistake of thinking that 
when the business grows or when I reach this milestone, things will get easier. Earn this much money, things will get easier. When I have this extra staff member, things will get easier. And I, we've said those things, you know, once we hire this extra person, then we'll have more time. Once we do this, then we'll have more time. And I mean, even though I've only been on YouTube two years now, we've been doing this since 2015 was actually when I first released my first digital product was 2015. It was a hobby then, but it was still something. And since back then, we've been saying statements like that. And I've come to realize that one day never comes. That one day is always a one day. And so unless you start putting in things now and start creating that room for that rest and that room for that time now, if you keep hustling, waiting for the one day to come, you will just burn out because one day will never come. Because as your business grows, it gets easier in some regards. But if you're like me that loves taking on new projects, every extra bit of time that you free up, you're going to find something else to put there. I'm so guilty of that, of like, we finally free up a week and then it's like, hey, I have an idea. And so you take on more. It gets bigger and the opportunities get bigger, but also the responsibilities get bigger. Everything gets bigger. To think that as your business grows, that somehow you have more free time, it's not necessarily the case unless you make it the case. And I mean, I hear about a lot of people that grow their business huge and they get their 10 million followers and all of a sudden they wish that they had their life back. And so it's like, you've got to, from the start or at some point, stop and go, okay, so we're actually covering our own full-time wage. We've got a team, we're doing okay. If we don't stop and get a system in place now to free up some time and kind of take the long road and actually get a bit of a balanced life now, when are we going to do it? When is someday, if not now? That's actually probably my biggest goal now for the next few months. And it has been kind of this year, and I feel like we have come a long way, is working out what is our goal now to actually get that sustainability happening, to stop hustling and to actually find a better flow so that we can do this for the next 10 years, not just do it for one and then need like some six month break because we've completely pushed ourselves to the limit. Okay, I want to go back a little bit because I feel like we've talked a lot in the present and not that that's a bad thing. But one of the things that I found so interesting about your journey and who you are I read that in the past, growing up, you loved art. You loved taking art classes. You dropped math to do more art stuff. Then you hit, let's call it your adult years. And something happened where like, you just didn't continue on with that creative artistic pursuit. And then your maternity happens. And that's when you take on that creative element again. What happened in the middle that you didn't continue to follow that passion, that inspiration, that thing that gave you a lot of life? It sounds really arrogant to say I was the smartest kid in the school. I don't mean that because that sounds really rude, but like my school was constantly trying to invent new classes to keep up with me. And like when I was in year seven... Hang on, take back, take back. I need to hear this. What classes were they trying to invent for you? So when I was in like grade three and four, there was this extracurricular stuff that was brought in. And then like in year seven, I jumped into a year nine class and then was doing that with the year nine kids. And then when I was in year eight, I actually did a student exchange and ended up in Italy for a year. But I actually went from year eight to year 10 and completely skipped year nine. But then I went to Italy for a year and came back and ended up back in the same, like my school year is a bit of a mess. But I basically was always doing a couple of subjects a few years ahead and then finished at, I think the American word is valedictorian, finished at the top of the school the last year, our year 12, where most kids, like you only have to do four subjects. I was doing like eight, but I was an overachiever, not because I worked hard. It was just because I was a quick learner. So like in year 12, decided to study Latin because I was bored. I just decided, 
why not? Because I'd started learning it on my student exchange that I did to Italy. So I came back and in year 11 and 12, did a crash course in Latin while I should have been focusing on all my other seven subjects to try and sort of get a good grade in year 12. So I tended to do that. But like one of the things when I did skip year nine was the teachers very much drilled into me you're only allowed to skip your nine if you do history and geography and a lot of the academic stuff. So I constantly had teachers pushing me into the academic subjects. And we were also like an underprivileged school out in the country compared to like the city school. So we didn't have a lot of the resources. And so I definitely didn't try very hard in school. I just kind of did well. But I loved art. But the thing is that I got so busy and just pursued a lot of things because I was really quick at learning stuff. Anything that took persistence... I never did. And the thing about art is as much as I loved it, actually learning to draw takes a lot of time. And because I was a quick learner, I very much got very, very good through school at just doing things that I could learn quickly and that I would get really good grades at. And so my creative pursuits kind of moved away from art and moved into things like I started doing graphic design. I dabbled, although never pursued properly because I didn't have any of the resources, I started doing things like 3D animation, a lot of like different, still creative things, but not art. When I left school, I actually tried to start a freelance company at the time and did graphic design for different people and just made like brochures and websites and stuff like that for a little while. So that was kind of my creative outlet for a while. And I actually thought that that would be my business. And funny enough, before I started drawing coloring books, the business that I tried to start in maternity leave was actually designing a iPhone app, a game, no coding experience whatsoever. It was some like drag and drop app that I discovered and I'd drawn the characters and it was like some monkeys on the side of a rocket that you shot into space and had to not let the monkeys fall off the rocket. And you had to collect bananas on the way up. It flopped. It made one cent (laughs) off ad revenue. (laughs) But after high school, I actually went to Melbourne and did an internship at a church at that time. It was a different range of opportunities that I pursued and didn't go to university at all, much to the disgust of my teachers. But I ended up doing an internship and I ended up working at a church doing actually video editing and graphic design at that church. But that was mostly a volunteer position. So to earn money for that, I actually ended up working in childcare for many years. And so for the next probably five or six years, my life was just a normal job, like working in childcare, but then volunteering many, many hours. And it was actually through the volunteering that I built a lot of skills just from working in graphic design, in video editing. It's also where I met my husband, who also built a lot of his video editing skills there, which has come very much in handy now. And then at one point, I also did some freelance children's entertainment. So there is some photos out there somewhere of me dressed as a clown with red hair. So bizarre backstory, but I didn't draw in all that time. And it was actually having kids that taught me how to be persistent because for the first time becoming a mum, you can't just leave when things get hard. And I think that was the thing that really woke me up to that I'd actually didn't realize until that point that I'd always taken the easy route, that I'd always just pick things that I was good at rather than actually working hard on something. And so for the first time when I actually picked up drawing again, I realized that if I wanted to actually be good at drawing, I needed to actually stop and work at it and stop just taking shortcuts and stop just picking the easy option, which I even did for the first couple of years in my coloring books 
which I look back at some of them now. And even though people still love them, I'm a little bit embarrassed by them because I did the easy option and I kind of used my graphic design skills to kind of whip them together really quickly. But it was actually a few years later where I stopped and really started putting the effort in. And if you watch my videos back, even at the start of my YouTube journey to now, you can actually see massive progress and changes in my own art because that's where I started to really put the hours in. That's the first time I started spending five or six hours on an art piece and really started to actually commit the time to something. Before then, I wouldn't spend more than half an hour on something. And it's amazing how just putting the time in completely changed my own skill set, changed my approach to everything. And it really made me realize even raising my own kids, because one of my kids is very much like me, where he's a very quick learner and he gives up on things that he's not good at. And I was like, no, I'm going to teach you grit. (laughs) You need to learn persistence because I wish I learned persistence much earlier. I didn't learn it till I was like 25. (laughs) Wow. One really cool story. I love that school made court, the school (laughs) adapted for you. And it's funny because they probably saw that as, oh, we're going to invest in Sarah. So when Sarah goes to cure cancer, it's like, oh, look who helped her do her thing. And you're like, nah. Sarah's just coloring books on YouTube. Sorry, guys. (laughs) Which has its place in the world. And I think for the 170-ish K subscribers that you have on YouTube, you're doing the exact same therapeutic work that maybe putting your time into a more traditional field like medicine would actually do. But the thing that I picked up on when I was listening to your story, I think it was on Desiree's podcast, is you were saying initially you created the coloring books for mothers who would go through maybe the same like depressive state or the same challenges that you went through. And much earlier in the conversation, you said the one thing that you're really good at is listening to your audience and knowing what they want. And you can see this through and through. I feel like there's such a strong entrepreneur in you because I think about those things often. That's wild. It's cool that you have a really strong crossover between being a creator and being an entrepreneur. Do you feel that in your own self? Like, can you identify that in yourself? Yeah, I think I've definitely done things backwards. Like I found it very interesting recently at the conference we attended, talking to other YouTube creators. I came in feeling like I was the newbie who, you know, on the scale of other YouTube creators, I was talking to a small audience, right? So, you know, 170,000 isn't a small audience, but I was talking to people that had millions, so it felt small. Yet, and so I felt like the new kid on the block and yet talking to people and people were just fascinated by what I had to share and my knowledge because I have done things backwards in that I've come in and have actually learned the marketing and been doing products and been working with my audience for five years before starting YouTube. And so I've come into YouTube and actually grown YouTube really, really quickly because we have this entire established system behind it and also happen to have this background knowledge in video production and all that. And we've just kind of applied what we know. And so YouTube's felt like a really natural fit for me. And it's almost just like this last missing puzzle piece that just become the main thing we do. But it's almost like we already had the whole basis set. And it's just like the last little thing that was like, oh, that's what it was that just needed to go there. And so it's been very interesting talking to people. And I think I've really realized for myself that we know what we're doing a lot more than I realized we know what we're doing. Just in talking to other people and having people, I guess, as interested in our story and even just like people like yourself reaching out to invite us on their podcasts. We've had a lot of invitations in the past few weeks that has really caught me by surprise because people are so interested in my story and 
I never realized until recently how much of a story we have in the business that we have built. Because I guess like so many people starting to build a business, the first five years feel like you're just building in an abyss of the internet where nobody knows who you are and you're just hoping that one day you'll make it. And all of a sudden, like from the world's perspective, we've come out of nowhere. And yet in reality, we've actually been building something this whole time. And I guess that's the story for a lot of people is that there is such a thing as an overnight success because we've seen that with things like TikTok. But in terms of the businesses that are going to stick around and that sustainable business model, those aren't built overnight. And I'm hoping that for us, this is the start of something big for us and the start of the next chapter of our business. But it's taken us like, I think this is our seventh year of our business now. And I'm talking from when I started it that first day as a hobby back in, you know, 2015, but it's been a long journey for us and it doesn't feel like it now looking back, but it definitely felt like it along the way. Well, the thing that I was fascinated by, again, doing some research and learning a little bit about your story on this topic of doing things backwards. And you can tell when you spoke to me about the marketing, when you go viral, you have this marketing funnel. And that means at least just there's like a couple more people coming in. Again, like people don't have that mindset is you spoke about how you found yourself in such an advantageous position when you started on Facebook because you got to try out and essentially have it as your sandbox. So when you came over to YouTube, you were polished and you were ready to go. Was that conscious in the moment or did you then only realize this once you started on the YouTube journey and you were able to look back and see what actually had happened? Because that's a fascinating creator development that I don't think we see a lot of people do today. That is actually one of the few things that I was very conscious about. Back when I started doing live videos in my Facebook group, actually, that's pretty much where it was. It was hidden in my Facebook group or on my Facebook page. At that point in time, I felt like I was behind as a creator because all of the world was talking about video. This is before short form was a thing. I think it was before TikTok blew up and everything. But everybody was saying, you need to get on video because video is the future. I'd only just taken like a photo shoot and put my face on my website. I was like, oh, I don't know about this because... I was still like feeling funny about just being the face at all. Um, But I knew that I had to get comfortable on camera. And I actually approached every video going, I'm better off making my mistakes now than making my mistakes when I have a million followers. Like that was literally how I approached a lot of my videos. And it took the pressure off even just approaching it like that because you hear people like Mr. Beast talk about make your 100 crappy videos And I think sometimes creating those statements actually really does take the pressure off because I think if you come into a video and go, okay, this has to be the best video ever, in reality, it's not going to be because you're going to get better. But that pressure totally sets you up for failure. Whereas if you can take that pressure off already and just be like, I have to just get this video out because the next one will be better and the next one will be better and the next one will be better. And if you know that going into it, I think for me that absolutely was freeing. And I did recently find one of those videos that I posted in a Facebook group and I watched it and it was like, gosh, I was this shy little girl. It's so different to what people see if they go on my YouTube channel. Even back to my first YouTube video, the stuff on Facebook is like a different person. People would be surprised at the contrast. I'll find it one day and upload it on my second channel just for fun, I think, because it is good for people to see that I wasn't natural on camera. Like I always liked being on camera to a point. As a kid, we used to make videos with our cousins and stuff like on the old big heavy camera things that you have that my dad would have to like fix every time we used it because it would break down if it didn't get used for six months and (laughs) stuff like that. But 
And when it came to actually teaching people on camera, I would run out of breath after every sentence because I wouldn't breathe in between my words and I would just get lost and I would constantly need to stop. And I'd talk too fast and you could barely understand me because, you know, Australian accent and just racing and racing and racing. And then I get to the end of the video and I wouldn't know how to tie up. So I just keep talking and talking and talking. All those early beginner mistakes, I made them all on those Facebook videos. I didn't know at that time that I would start a YouTube channel, but I did know that video would be important. And so my goal was just make the mistakes now. I mean, it was still, it was still felt important. I think I had probably 4,000 followers on Facebook, so it didn't feel small for what it was, but I always anticipated that it would grow further. And it was like, well, It's that whole concept of the best time to start was yesterday. The second best time is now. It's like, well, I've got to get used to it sometimes. So might as well start. We were talking a little earlier about this very quick rise to supposed fame and success with the era of TikTok. But you must be smiling knowing that you put in all your development years in both the product, your mindset, video, technology, community, all that good stuff you get to a point now and I think you said it best you're like you're in a point now where you can stay controlled it must feel empowering when you get to speak to all these other creators that are like how do I grow what do I do here what do I do here and you're like I don't know it's gonna take five years and they're like take five years like what are those conversations like when people come to you for advice yeah I actually have a close friend who's just started on Instagram and I see it's very interesting having those close conversations because she's coming to me regularly after she posts something, it got three likes, it got this and this and this. And it's very, very interesting because I'm seeing exactly what I used to see in myself, but it's stuff I don't even look at now. Can you give me an example? So like she would post something and she's watching exactly how many people watch it, exactly how many people like it, exactly how many people unlike it. Now the unlikes or the, the people that choose to unfollow you is a number I do not even look at anymore. Perfect example like our email list, I have no idea how many people unsubscribe. It's a number we actually don't look at. I think I looked at it once like two years ago and it was like every email we send gets like 50 unsubscribes. Now that's a really scary number if you think about it and you go, what am I doing wrong? Until you realize that unsubscribes are people that are actually actively going, I'm not interested and therefore they're pulling themselves out of your funnel and therefore your funnel is more focused. And it's like, you don't need to worry about those people. You worry about the people that are staying in the funnel, right? And that 50 unsubscribe, but at the same time, we've had a thousand new people subscribe. So it's like focus on the thousand, not the 50. And I think for us, that's been a really healthy thing to just ignore the people that choose to disconnect. In fact, it saves us time because then we don't have to go and find them later and delete them ourselves because they've kind of done that for us. Because we actually do that with our email list as we find the people that are inactive, but that's sort of like a side thing. So to kind of help direct her in those things and sort of say, okay, like it's interesting because I discovered that a lot of the things with a new creator is actually more about mindset. And it was about not looking so closely at the numbers and not comparing yourself to other creators were the two biggest things that I ended up coming back to her over and over and over because they were the biggest things. And I remember it was the same for me, looking at other channels that you feel like your content is as good as theirs. In reality, when you look at it from an outside perspective, it's usually not, but it's very hard as a new person to see what the difference is. It's interesting, me as a third party looking at it and the difference is obvious because you know more things, you can see the subtleties in the differences, 
But when you're the person who's created the content, usually you can't tell the difference. And I see that a lot with other people where they're like, my content's just as good as theirs. Why is theirs going viral and mine's not? It's very hard to explain to someone in the moment that your content's actually not as good as theirs. So you just can't have that conversation. But that's just a learning thing, I think. You'll just learn that as you grow. But to actually just reiterate that thing of like, you just have to give it time. You're not going to blow up when you only have 20 videos on your platform or 20 images on your Instagram. It's going to take you the 100 crappy videos concept. I mean, in saying that, I've only just had 100 videos on my YouTube channel, so it's not essential, but that's 100 videos with five years of experience beforehand. So it's a little bit of a different story. If you're talking about someone starting from zero, then I think that concept totally applies. It's the concept of you have to have meat in the game before you're going to see results is really what that concept is saying. It's not specific to videos. It's specific to just something. So like an Instagram, this was like, well, okay, you've only ever posted one thing. Don't even look at the stats yet. And that's really hard because the stats is kind of at that point, your only sign of whether you're actually succeeding or not. And I think this is one of the hardest things as a creator at any point in the game is that the stats are there and they are how we measure everything. But at the same time, they are also the biggest lie in how we see our success because they're such a small part of the bigger picture. The stats are great if you can look at them over a month. They're not great if you're looking at them day to day. But that's also really, really hard not to look. And I think that's the biggest thing that I would advise any creator is try to look at the stats less, but I also know that that's the hardest advice to take, especially when something's going viral. You want to look at it every day. But the times when I think I've had the best success and when I felt the best about myself are the days where I haven't looked at my stats for a week because the more you look at them, I think the worse you feel. No matter how good the stats are, I don't think they make you feel good. Yeah. So is there a stat that you focus on now, again, knowing everything that you know? and going through and gaining the perspective that you've gained, what's the stat that means the most to you, regardless of what the platform is? It could just be only YouTube, it could be TikTok, IG. I think for me, it's not about which stat it is as much as looking at them over longer periods of time. So rather than looking at the views of my latest video in a day, it's I look at the views after a month because trends change so much. You might have a bad video, but then that video might pick up a month later, or you might look at a post that's done okay, or three posts that's done okay, but you need to look at the whole week of content. And there might be something that goes viral, but then again, that one viral thing isn't reflective of your whole business. You need to sort of look at the patterns and you don't see patterns in the days. Plus I've just found that because there's that whole chemical thing of, you know, the dopamine levels and that, I think that in general, and just allowing your brain to chemically connect with your socials in that business sense. I just don't see that as a healthy thing. And I know for me, that's been a real trap in letting yourself find value in those numbers, even though it feels good in the moment. I always find myself the days when I've like daily checked my stats by the end of the week, I actually feel pretty rubbish. It's, um, I don't think there's ever been a time where I felt better by the end of the week when I've checked my stats regularly. I can definitely agree. And I think what you're almost saying getting at is like, figure out what means the most to you internally in the process. And then the numbers can potentially validate the trajectory, but not actually validate your value. What do you do to turn off? What do you do to reset so you can continue being creative, continue being passionate? For me, I think I found it really important to try and have hobbies that aren't connected to my business. So 
because I'm a creative person, that for me means finding things that aren't art related. Because initially it was like, well, I like drawing, I like art. So, okay, I'll do painting in my free time in saying that I never got to the painting because I have kids and setting up painting is not practical. That was my goal. (laughs) But then I decided I should try painting on my channel. Now painting has become a part of my job. So now when I go to do something like painting or some other creative thing, it's like, oh, but maybe I should film it. As soon as your brain clicks into maybe I could monetize this, I think you don't relax. And so I think for me, it's become puzzles because that's something that is not connected to my job at all. Reading books or something like that. Even gardening. I like go through little patches where I'll like go start a vegetable garden for a bit and usually gets abandoned when I'm really, really busy at work and all the plants die, but (laughs) we go through seasons. But I think it's really important in order to keep everything sustainable to actually give yourself other things and other hobbies that you can't and don't monetize, like that you refuse to monetize and that you refuse to bring into your business so that you have an escape. Because if everything you do is tied to your business, you will never get a break. And you might not feel like you need a break. Like I know for me, I love what I do. And so part of me is like, I don't need a break from this, but that might not always be the case. And when you finally do reach that point, or if you do end up hitting that burnout, you'll have nothing to go to. And so by giving yourself those things along the way that you can go to where you can actually switch off, or like for me, sometimes it's video games or something as well, or movies, you know, to give yourself those things now that you have, that you can switch off, that are not business related, that you don't start streaming while you're doing them, things like that, that your audience has nothing to do with, I think is a really healthy boundary to create for yourself and avoid the temptation to start a second channel for them because you can monetize that too. Because I think as creators, sometimes we just like, you know, I play Zelda sometimes. So maybe I could make a second streamer Twitch thing because, you know, my fans, they like that. They might like to see me play that too and hang with me. And it's like, no, that's my thing. Stay away. (laughs) I think a lot of creators don't do that. And all of a sudden you find they've taken six months off because they've burnt out and no one saw it coming. And it's because people don't create these boundaries in their life where they actually give themselves other things. And all of a sudden, like in the creative world, you find that they're like, I don't want to create anymore. I don't want to do art anymore. And it's like, but you loved art. What happened? It's like when you have to do it constantly and like especially with art, when it's your job now and you're forced to create something every week, it gets harder and harder to enjoy the process. I'm still enjoying it, by the way, but I know that I see that happen over and over where people are like, I just actually just don't want to now. It's become a burden. And once you hit that point, I think that's where it's really clear you need some other things. How do you stay creative? What do you do outside of just drawing and painting to stay creative, to continue to come up with ideas, to feel like everything still stays fresh and the passion is still there? I think for me, it is puzzles. I love getting outside I don't get outside enough. I actually watch a lot of movies more than anything. So I actually do a lot less creating than what people would think. In fact, pretty much I only ever draw or do creative stuff in my videos. So I don't actually run out of interest. I have a hundred things I would like to do that I haven't done yet. And basically the progress that people have seen in my skills, I have developed on camera because I have almost never had time because everything else I do is marketing and business and all of the behind the scenes of the business, which I love as well. So for me, that's also a big passion. And so that kind of works for me. But in terms of the actual art, 
I've pretty much only ever done what people have seen on the channel. So for me, that's not been a problem. I haven't really run out of the passion to create. It's actually fun for me to go, oh, yay, I get to draw today. It's actually been for me having the channel has been a wonderful excuse to stop and draw something for a couple of hours once a week because I never made time to create before that. And as a result of that, I finally developed my drawing skills and my art skills in a way that I never could have before doing YouTube because I never made the time. Interesting. So then where do you draw inspiration from or who are your inspirations? That's a really tricky question because I think it's just a bit of everything. Like even I think about like YouTube, I just watch 50 to 100 different YouTube channels. I try not to watch too much of one particular thing and we just take little ideas from everywhere and we'll be watching Netflix and watch a show and I'll pause it and I'll say to Shane, did you see that transition? We can't switch off the brain once you start in that. We'll be looking at a show and go, oh, did you see that font? Do you reckon you can work out what font that is? Because that'd be really good for titles. It's really hard to turn off the media brain once it's on. So we'll be stealing stuff from TV shows, from movies, from other YouTube channels. And it's like, if you get inspiration from everywhere, then you end up not looking like any one thing. And so you end up not copying someone because you're kind of like inspired by everybody all at once. (laughs) Which is a beautiful thing. But to your point, it's when there's so much of it, you have to find a way to narrow it down to one or two things. And so I guess that's the next question is, if there's so many things you want to do, how do you decide what to pursue first and then what to pursue later? So definitely having too many ideas is a problem that we've always had. I always have an ongoing list of, you know, 15 different products that I'd like to make and five new coloring books that I'd like to draw and 30 new videos that are like, this is the next video at any given time. I don't think we're going to have a shortage of ideas for a good 10 years. That is not the problem that we personally have, which is a good situation to be in. It does mean that we have to be very intentional about slowing down because the trap for us is overdoing it because every time we free up time, we try to cram in another idea. So for me, the process is more about how do we filter those ideas? So I actually have on different computer systems, like just your Trello, ClickUp, Notion. I moved between a few. I'm trying to decide what to stick to. But I have an idea dump board where basically everything goes on there. And then I try to like once a month or once every two months stop and look at it all and work out kind of just ask those questions of like, which one will serve our audience the most? Is there any that we could just create quickly? Which one are people asking for? Which one makes the most logical sense for our niche? Because as much as like, I would love to try every art supply, my audience knows me for coloring. I feel like I've kind of put myself in the box of coloring and that's okay. Cause that's a really good niche to be in as much as that was kind of accidental. And I would quite happily do all kinds of art. I like to try and put things through that filter because, I mean, look at my wall. My style is colouring. That's my thing. So we sort of try and put things back through that a bit as well. And we kind of just ask these different questions. Also things of like, okay, well, which one would be the biggest hit? Which one will bring in the most revenue for our business? And so we sort of go through these different questions and kind of try to filter out the ideas. But we often don't do that right away because the thing is when you first come up with an idea, there's a level of excitement and there's this desire, you know, that shiny object syndrome of just it's exciting because it's fresh and it's new and you just want to chase after it. And so we try not to just jump on new ideas right away. We try to stop, even just write them down and put them in this sort of like pile-up area and come back to them when we can actually approach them a bit more logically And that's when we stop and make a decision and work out, can it fit in the schedule? 
The only exception to that is if there is like a timely thing. So like at the moment, we're actually about to head to an expo, which we've never done before, like an in-person event where we're taking products and we're going to be selling products and meeting people. And see, the reason for that, it was a timely thing, but that was like a big yes for me because an in-person event just lines up so much with what we're saying about our business being so much about people. And there are not many of them that we wouldn't have to organize ourselves. This is something that we could just get a table at. And so as much as we were totally unprepared and it's actually like this week and we had like one week's notice to plan it, I was like, I think we can manage this. Let's do this. Let's see how it goes. And this event for us will determine whether we'll try them again in the future, depending on how it goes. So there's some things that we just go, well, yeah, let's do it. But most of our decisions go through quite a filter process because we just can't take on every idea. We say no to nine out of 10 ideas just because we have to keep everything really structured in order to actually be able to do the core stuff that we do. I feel like to your point, there's no such thing as no problems in the world, right? It's if a creator's like, oh, I need more ideas, but then they come up with all your ideas. Here's your problem of there's too many ideas. How do we dictate and come up with a system to make sure that we're doing what's best now, but still allowing for the room to learn and grow later. The color cube. Talk to me about that because I think when we were talking back at VidSummit, you said something really interesting. And it was that I don't know if I want to keep producing them so quickly right now. I kind of want to be, again, be in control. Like the same notion that we've been talking about a lot. Give me a little bit of background. How did the color cube come to be? What's it doing for you now? Maybe what's the next evolution potentially, what you're excited about? <laughs> Give me all the nuggets. Yeah. So going back to where it all started was actually back in 2018. For a bit of context, back before we did YouTube, back before all of this, I had a blog. Most of my business was based on this website, based on this blog, and I just posted articles that were helpful to people. And I noticed that a lot of people that were in my audience really struggled to pick colors that worked well together when they're coloring their pages a lot of them weren't looking for like a reference photo for like coloring, say a face. They were looking for like colors that would work together for things like patterns or flowers or stuff like that. And again, this is just art based like coloring books. So I started creating these color palettes, which there were others already on Pinterest. And I thought I could make something similar and created these color palettes where you basically, you had a picture that you draw inspiration from. And then I picked like the five colors out of the picture and said, okay, try putting these five colors together, see how they work. And they were so popular, like some of them on Pinterest were reshared like 50,000 times. Now, at this point, I probably only had 3,000 people following me on Facebook and similar on my email list. And so to have something shared 50,000 times was like a big sort of like, oh, pay attention, this is popular. So I ended up creating in 2018, 250 of these and put them in a digital book. We called it the Color Catalogue. And over the past few years since we sold that, we have sold tens of thousands of this book as a digital download. It was what took our business to earning like $100,000 a year was this product. It was the first thing when we launched it that we made over $10,000 in one month on that launch. It was life-changing for us, just this product. And we didn't expect it because we thought people can find this stuff on Pinterest. Why do they want this product so much? But it was something that our audience just kept coming back to us and saying, we love this so, so much. And so we've been selling this for the past four years, this color catalog, and we started adding things on because our audience kept coming back saying, we love this, but we want to know how do I find my Prismacolor or my Derwent pencils that match? 
And so we created these add-ons that you could buy where you could buy the Derwent add-on and it would tell you, okay, this particular pencil matches this colour, which took months to work out because I had to like buy all the pencils and match them up myself. (laughs) But people loved it. And the one thing that people kept saying was like, oh, I wish I could have this in a book, like in my hands. It was actually last year we were talking about, we really would love to get this in a book. And at this point we had for the past two years done a physical planner, my coloring planner, which is another product we do. And we'd finally found a a manufacturer for that that we were really happy with. And we thought, now that we've done a few runs of that, I think we're ready to try and look at some other products. And we thought, well, if we're going to do another product, the color catalog is the product that we need to do next. And I was thinking about how I use it because I'd actually started using it a lot as well. And I thought, everyone keeps asking for a book, but I would find a book impractical because I want to look at like four or five of these palettes at the same time. I don't want to have to flip. And so I stopped and I thought, I think we should do cards because then we can look at them all at once. So we didn't tell our audience about this at all. And from January or February this year up until like June, we just, we were working on prototypes. I was sitting like in InDesign, like spending hours reformatting everything. I thought we'd have it done in a month and it took us like six. Um, We got samples from the manufacturer. We initially designed it to be like slightly larger than a Rubik's cube, I guess, And there were these little cards and we got it back from the manufacturer, the sample, and realized that because there were 250 cards, they were so thick that it couldn't be a cube. So I was like, well, no, it has to be a cube. So we made everything bigger. And so everything changed from the sample and we got foam added and we, you know, just wanted to make it perfect. And so in July, we finally launched with a video. We told our audience, but it was cold. We didn't tell them it was coming. The only hint I gave them was like in an email, I said, something's coming soon. And the only hint is that it's a cube. Now that's all the hint we gave them. So they had no context that it was the physical color catalog, which everyone had been asking for. And we launched it. And basically in revenue, we made $50,000 in the first two days, which for us was just like, what? (laughs) We had no idea. We did not expect it to be so popular. We knew that our audience would love it because we knew it's exactly what they wanted. We had the proof of sale from the digital color catalog. I mean, the reviews on our website, there's like three or 400 reviews that are just raving about it. It's the one product It outsells all my coloring books like 10 times over every other product on my website. It just outsells them all. And so we knew it would be popular, but it absolutely blew all of our expectations out of the water. So at this point, we have sold 8,400 of the cubes since July. So that's July, September. That's three months. So our audience is 170,000 people on YouTube. So I'm running some Facebook ads to a cold audience and some retargeting. I'm running some Pinterest ads and we have an email list of 22,000 people. And then our Facebook and Instagram audiences are about 20,000 each. And we've sold over 8,000 cubes with those audiences. It's in revenue, so not income, but revenue. It's bringing in at the moment about $200,000 a month, which for us, that was last year's annual revenue, you know, like that it's numbers that we've never dealt with. And it's completely changed everything. The problem that we have now is that We only ordered 10,000 cubes and we've basically sold them out. And the pre-sale stock, it's arrived in Australia now and it's finally getting in people's hands, but the American distributor hasn't even received the stock yet. So we've actually like sold out in America before the stock has even arrived in people's hands, which is just something we didn't expect. 
So we've actually already gone back to our distributor and ordered 40,000 more. (laughs) So all that revenue has gone straight back into the manufacturing. But it is a very exciting thing. So what you were saying about with us slowing things down now is I'm in a position now where this has changed the game for us. And it's like now we have this product that has the potential to be our million dollar product for us. It is a game changer for everything that we do. It has caught the attention of people. People want to talk about it. And plus now, as people are starting to get it, we are seeing Instagram posts and reels and things pop up. And like someone recently had an Instagram, they had an account of 200 and they had a reel that they put up and it got 20,000 views in the first day. So it's even picking up viral attention on other people's accounts. So we're probably going to see momentum pick up on its own without us touching it now that it's actually starting to end up in other people's hands. Plus, we've got other YouTubers who've got it in their hands that are all planning on doing videos on it. And we've got affiliates that are planning on doing it. So the potential here is crazy. And our problem is going to be now, we need more stock and our manufacturer can only print so many at a time. And so I actually want to sponsor other YouTubers, but we've actually stopped and said, we need to wait. (laughs) Because if we sponsor them now, we're just going to run out of stock. And as much as like the pre-order people are waiting, I don't want the constant thing about this product is that people are constantly waiting for it to be in stock. I mean, there is definitely a sort of scarcity element that's kind of like people want to buy it because it's scarce. But I also feel like there's also a negative experience that if people are like always waiting. So I'm sort of actually at the point of like, we need to get our stock lined up. We need to get a bit of a pattern happening. We need to work out how much can the manufacturer produce and get that sort of process and that flow, work out how many we're selling. I mean, at the moment we're selling about 250 a week, which is just crazy. I believe that's going to increase. And so we need to figure that all out before we try and do any more advertising. I'm like, hold the budget. Don't put any more into Facebook ads. Don't put any more into Pinterest, despite the fact that they're both getting an amazing return. Like we're putting in $1, we're getting back five, like on cold ads. This product is just going crazy. At the moment, we actually can't keep up. And so that's where it's like a very unique position to be in. And that's where I'm like, we need to stop and we need to get the systems in place and we need to get the stock in. And that's where we told them, give us 20,000 more. And we've gone back and gone, you know what? Let's get 40,000 because the numbers at the moment, we'll sell sell that out in a year. And if we have the 40,000, then we can look at trying to sell it out quicker. But let's get the stock first. Well, first off, like major congratulations. Like that's unbelievable. This is what every creator tries to go for. It's find the product that the audience wants, sell the product. The product then becomes like that passive income as long as you've got stock and you've got a fulfillment center and then that just fuels your content. And it sounds nice. And I think a lot of the time it sounds simple. Like, oh, you have this massive audience. So let's just sell it to them. But as you can see, for you at least, again, you have a very entrepreneurial mindset and a very strong business acumen. And so you can tell that like slowly you keep adding different things and you just saw that the need was here for this. The thing that I want to know, how do you think this situation would have changed if you teased it out to your audience throughout the process? Do you think you would have benefited or do you think it actually would have led to even more problems? 
Yeah, I really don't know because every other launch we've ever done, we have teased it out. But then at the same time, we did do pre-orders. We didn't wait for the stock before we announced it. So we did do pre-orders. And even with the pre-orders, by the time the stock arrived, we had people starting to get upset. And we're only talking three months. Now, I think that's actually a very short pre-order process, to be completely honest. But we had people starting to get upset and being like, I ordered this in July. Where is it? I think if we had have started advertising sooner, started offering pre-orders sooner, I wonder if that would have created that longer sense of it's been forever, where are they? I don't know. I mean, it's something you'd never know until it sort of happens, I guess. But I see some people that do things like Kickstarter and it takes them a year to actually get the product out. And I wonder how much of that excitement dilutes and wears off that people finally get the product and they're disappointed because they waited so long. I think we got the timing just right that people are getting them and the few people that were starting to get disappointed and now changing the comments and going, I can see other people are getting them. That means I'm one step closer. And there's been this new sort of uptick in the hype again where people are seeing them show up in their feed and people are all posting photos in our group of them yay, it arrived, or yay, I got my notification. And so I think we did it well the way we did it. I wouldn't generally advise someone else to do a cold launch on something because I think it worked for this because I knew the audience wanted it because we had so much study and research already behind it to know that it's what the audience wanted. Every other product I've ever launched, I wouldn't recommend doing that. And I probably wouldn't recommend it as a general marketing thing, even though it's what we did. <laughs> How exciting that you have three really strong streams, right? It's like you've got your YouTube, which is doing so well. And it doesn't matter what, if comparative to other people, like 176,000 after just 100 videos, to me, is pretty unbelievable. And, and I can see you're tapped in with the art community. Like I can see everyone else commenting on, on your stuff with just such positive reviews. Then you have your product side and potentially some of the advertising side. It feels like, again, the theme throughout this has really just been control, even though that wasn't the theme I came in with. Like the theme here is control. And it seems like at this point, October, I don't know what day is it, October 10th, 2022, there is like an element of control over everything. And so now the game becomes so much fun because you know how to control it. You know what you want. You know your audience so well. They know you so well that from now on, it just seems like sky's the limit. Yeah, I think it definitely feels exciting knowing that we can grow. And like with this now, it's like we don't know what next year is going to bring. And it's exciting to think that we are going to see, I think, the biggest growth we've ever seen in the next 12 months and not knowing where that's going to go, but also feeling like we have a platform underneath us and a, a strong foundation that we will be able to manage whatever comes our way. And I think that's something that I'm not expecting our business to go viral as such, but if our business doubles next year, we could handle that. And I would like to think that we could bring in another two new team members next year and that we could, you know, start to do things on a bigger scale, but also to manage our own time a bit better and to get some more product lines happening and stuff like that. But I want to enjoy it as well. I want more than anything to actually feel like that we're not racing and hustling and always trying to just keep up. I think that's something that honestly, since the pandemic, I feel like it's always just trying to keep up with the business, keep up with the next video. And that's something that I would like to see change more than anything is actually feel like we have more time that when things like this, this opportunity with this expo comes up where I can actually start to meet some people and to actually 
go out and do like a bit of a meet and greet with some of my followers that we can actually do that and say yes to that and have time for that, not say no because we're just too busy. Well, if I put myself in your shoes, the thing that would excite me the most is, oh, here's a product that can stand alone on its own. And then they go take a look at who created it and, oh, who's Sarah Renee Clark? I don't really know. Cool, who's Sarah? What? She has 100 YouTube videos? What? She has this email subscriber list? Like, that's so cool where there's someone that can be so emotionally connected to something and then have such a rabbit hole to become a super fan and become like so ingrained in everything that you are. To me, that's that takes the game to a whole different level. Yeah, I think for me, like with this product, being able to run a cold Facebook ad to completely cold audience. You know, the best part about that is that even though like that's converting so well that I'm like, we could double the budget on that and it would still convert. But the best part I'm loving about that is that we are starting to pick up those super fans that on those cold Facebook ads, when someone does comment something that's a bit nasty, I am getting masses come to defend my name and to start to come and be like, you have no idea. This product is amazing. You need to go check it out or check out her videos. And we've never had that before. We've never had this loyal fan base who just love everything we do. And that is just an exciting next part of this business, I think. Yeah, it's like the Taylor Swift idea where anything that happens to her, like she's just got this mass beehive that will come at anyone to make sure that she's okay. So amazing. Well, I have five questions to end off. Quick rapid fire. Oh, I always suck at rapid fire. I always overthink them. (laughs) Here's what I'll say. If you can't think of it, you can say next. These aren't going anywhere. It's not like you need to pass these five. So my problem with rapid fire is that I worry that if I get the wrong answer, it'll stick with me forever. I need to treat this as my practice rapid fire for the next more important interview when I have to get the rapid fire correct. (laughs) There it is. When you're on like Good Morning Australia or whatever that like big network is, I'm happy to be the training ground. You're the practice one. (laughs) So first question is... Where are you your most creative in terms of physical space? My mind is actually the most creative in the shower. I've heard that there's actually something scientific about water triggering your brain. I come out of the shower and go, Shane, I have an idea. And he's like, oh, no. (laughs) Number two is what has been the most impactful book that you've read? There's one at the moment that I've recently finished on storytelling that I really liked by Lisa Cron. I think it's called Write for Story. I like that. Question three, if you were to give a TED talk, what would it be about? I think it would be about either about finding your why or about making people the center of your business. Okay. Question four, who is a creator that you feel is underrated? Oh, that's tricky because I feel like there's like so many that I end up going blank and I can't think of anyone. I think uh, Mariah Elizabeth, because as much as she has a huge following, but when you ask around in creative circles, a lot of people actually don't know who she is. She has about 7 million subscribers. And what is amazing about those subscribers though, is that they are an insanely loyal audience and her videos get millions of views on the first day. And I don't know how she has the loyal following that she has. I think that is unheard of, even for her size. And I think that that's amazing. Insane. Okay. I don't know the name, so I got to go check that out. And the last question is, do you know your most viral video? Like what is your most viral video on YouTube? Most viral or most views? Because they're kind of too different. I guess probably better said the latter way. What is the video that has had the most views 
on your YouTube channel? The most viewed video on my YouTube channel is actually four years old. And ironically, it's about color theory, which is more in line with the color cube and is actually less on topic with the rest of my channel. But the reason that it has the most views is because I think it's been picked up in some school curriculums because it's like a seven minute informational infographic. It's like the only video on my channel that doesn't have my face in it. And you can tell because the school year, the views, and it's all search, the views go up Monday to Friday and then go down on the Saturdays and Sundays. And the comments are all like, I saw this at school and I didn't realize it was you. (laughs) It's definitely getting a lot of school searches. But in terms of not more recent videos, there's a video I did recently that is absolutely blowing up, which I think will be my next video to hit that kind of level, is I did a video comparing 60 different white pens And I actually put from that storytelling book I just mentioned a lot of lessons from that book into this video and somehow got my audience crying over white pens. Now, I'm actually really proud of the video and how it all came together. And it's probably one of my best turning information into storytelling type videos that I've done today. It's a fairly recent one and it's picking up really well on YouTube. Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to end it off there and I will link those two videos in the show notes for anyone that wants to cry over white pens and or feel like they're back in school with color theory. Sarah, it has been an absolute pleasure. I think there is so much that can be talked about. I'm going to keep listening to all the interviews that you're going on to catch the questions that I didn't get a chance to ask. Keep doing you. It is super exciting to see someone build for the long term, but just hit the stride now. And so thank you for coming on. And it's been a blast love that episode. And you can hear this longevity, this long-term mindset with Sarah, and not this quick pop opportunity. What I respect so much about her, amongst many other things, is how she's building the foundations properly. And she's not getting caught up in the hype. And she's doing all the right things. And she's really got something, her sauce and her ability, should I say, to color and draw and then extend those lines and be an educator while being an entertainer and collaborating with the best people on the platform in her space and responding to her comments feels like she's doing everything right. And it really is just time until she really pops. Now, 175,000 subscribers is not easy and nothing you know, to blink an eye at. But I think Sarah's got so much more potential. So I'm really excited to see where it goes. Well, thanks again for listening. Love having you here. You're open to it. Would love if you could leave some stars, a review, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. And we'll see you next week with another amazing, amazing interview. I don't want to promise who, but very similar to Sarah, you're going to find this person fascinating as they're super early on in their journey, but they're so far along when it comes to their perspective. 